Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. There is a term that gets used when we discuss Army doctrine, unit of action. It's a term that does heavy lifting when we talk about future combat systems, evolution of tactics and techniques, and the modernization of formations. In 2017, FM3O Operations was published, placing a spotlight on division and corps as a tactical maneuver echelon, fighting as formations during large-scale combat operations. This shifted the way the U.S. Army started talking about armed conflict. And the combined arms maneuver and large-scale combat operations, preparing our formations as future leaders for future complex conflicts against peer threats. Divisions began to take this new place in a conversation, not as joint combined headquarters as we experienced in Iraq and Afghanistan, but as tactical maneuver echelons, as brigade combat teams had kind of been used previously. The recent FM3O published this past October 22 has continued this emphasis. Understanding what that means, especially to divisions and corps, though, is really crucial to modernization for conflicts that could involve extended battlefields austere environments, and threats that can do to us what we've become accustomed to doing to our enemies with impunity for like the last 20 years. So how does a division prepare for this future? How could a division commander guide the understanding and preparation? More importantly, what does that mean for multi-domain operations, and what do multi-domain operations mean to a division commander? Wouldn't it be great if we could find a former division commander with combat experience who is uniquely suited to discuss future modernization of the U.S. Army beyond 2025? Fort Leavenworth is lucky in that regard because right down the street from the old USDB, where our offices at CAD and Breaking Doctrine are, is Sherman Hall. It's the office of Lieutenant General Milford Beagle Jr., the current commanding general of the Combined Arms Center here at Fort Leavenworth, and the former commanding general of the 10th Mountain Division in Fort Drum, New York. Also, it's not a Breaking Doctrine episode without Colonel Retired Rich Creed, the director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, to help us discuss multi-domain operations and how it's shaping our doctrine and the way it's evolving. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nikki. It's awesome to be here. That, that intro was great, so it is awesome to be here with my battle buddy, Rich Creed. Yes, sir. It's fantastic. So I'm going to dig straight into this, but we're going to start out with definitions first, because I think that's absolutely crucial to establish the common lexicon. So we have discussed the background of Army's capstone manuals on previous episodes. Uh, typically, we unpack our definitions and concepts right out front, so that way we lay a foundation for audiences. Uh, want to continue that tradition, especially now with multi-domain operations as the new concept for most of our readers. Um, Mr. Creed, how do we define MDO, and what would that mean in lay terms if you were to unpack it for us? Yeah, thanks, Nikki. So I think um, the first thing I'll do is, is lay out that multi-domain operations started as this idea called multi-domain battle back in 2016. And so over time, um, the definitions have uh, evolved and become, we think, more and more useful to the force. So I'll end with what we say multi-domain operations are uh, in the current doctrine. Um, but we'll talk about this, I think, later. Uh, as part of that evolution, you know, we first started introducing this idea of multi-domain operations in the 2017 version of FM3O, where the focus of the book was actually primarily large-scale combat operations. But the idea was we knew where we were going, so we wanted to 
address this idea of a multi-domain extended battlefield. And we talked about the interrelationship of air, land, maritime space, uh, domains plus the information environment uh, that includes cyberspace and that larger electromagnetic spectrum. Um, and the importance of being able to see yourself and, and understand threats in terms of those domains. Uh, so we said, hey, you have to understand friendly enemy capabilities that reside in each domain, how they can be employed against us, uh, and then identify how we can create winners of opportunity uh, when you're dealing with these threats that can do things to us that, that we're used to doing to other people, um, to look for those opportunities and then converge in the plain English sense of the word uh, those capabilities for best effect. So what we say the definition of multi-domain operations is right now uh, multi-domain operations are the combined arms employment of joint and army capabilities to create and exploit relative advantage that achieves objectives, defeats enemy forces, and consolidates gains on behalf of joint force commanders. Uh, and I think one of the big takeaways there is, you know, many of the friendly capabilities that we bring to bear, army forces do on behalf of joint force commanders, are not necessarily organic uh, to army forces or our formations. And so the commanders and staffs have to plan for, they have to coordinate for, they have to understand uh, what those joint capabilities can do, uh, and then integrate their application uh, at echelon, and then synchronize the application of those capabilities in time and space during the conduct of operations. And so that's what we would call a multi-domain approach to operations. It's funny that you, the term convergence existed, or the idea of converging back in 2017 in FM30 when it was there, and the idea of multi-domain battle was was originally written about in that manual. So it's not the first time it's been there. It's not the first time the idea has been out there. And so for you both, sir and Mr. Creed, how has multi-domain operations and the models that we have done now in FM30 been received and interpreted by people other than just other doctrine writers? Yeah, so Nikki, I mean, I'll, I'll take a first you know, stab at it with regard to outside of our circles and how people look at it. I mean, the very first time I heard a trade documentary and at the time, it was General Perkins talking about multi-domain battle. And the one thing that he would always say is, is, you know, old wine in a new bottle, right? That's what, you know, he would, you know, frequently hear or get those type things. When, but when you really understand it and know it, and I think that's the one thing I didn't say up front, that's great about, you know, podcasts is that they're awesome because we allow people to learn and in, in different ways. We inform them, inform them in different ways because we, we learn in different ways. But when you really unpack it, you really understand how to unpack our doctrine, then you quickly see that it's, it's really not that. Uh, it's the evolution you know, of our doctrine over time. And it just goes from the start of air and battle to full spectrum operations to unified action. It, it, it evolves. But if you don't understand some of that history, then it's going to look a little bit odd or different to you, and then you're going to say silly things like, well, that's old wine in a new bottle, where, where really it's, it's not. You're we're evolving, and I think that's really some of the things that I've heard over time is like, what's new, what's different? And and you kind of get that, but when you understand it, then you can ask, I think, you know, deeper questions. I won't say better questions, but deeper questions about the doctrine, what we put in it, why we put in it, and why are we doing things you know, a certain way. Yeah. How about the doctrine community, sir? Has it been overly good or has it been challenging? It's become more positive over time. And so we had the same experience General Beagle had with hey, it's new wine and old skins. It's a new way of saying joint. You guys are just really talking about joint or, or you're just talking about combined arms. Um, and we said, well, yeah, but we were part of the joint force now. Army 
operations are always inherently joint. Um, but that's not what was different. Uh, what was different was you can't take, say, for example, air land battle doctrine, because people would say that too. Oh, this is just air land battle two. And we're like, okay, if that makes you happy, it could be MDO one or it could be air land battle two, however you want to think about it, but you need to read what it is we're talking about. Uh, because for all the old folks out there that say, hey, this is pretty similar to what we used to worry about. We would say, that's fine, you're right, but what percentage of the Army is under age 40? Uh, 85%? I mean, so it may not be new to you, but it is new to the Army we have today. A lot of those ideas are culturally different. They require a cultural shift uh, from the types of operations that we've been conducting basically since the Balkans in the, in the mid-90s, with a few exceptions, you know, say the beginning of the Iraq War. So. It, what we've, I think, managed to do in the doctrine community and then in some of the social media outreach things and discussion forums and so forth is say, acknowledge your points out there, your, your critiques, uh, but then try to educate people through what's different and why it's important for us to go a different direction. Yeah. Nikki, I'll relate to that. I mean, it's a great saying I heard somebody say, and they said the hardest thing or the only thing harder than getting a new idea into a military mind is getting an old idea out. And, and, it's, and it's very true. I mean, it's being critical, but you know, again, like Rich and I, we, we, we both you know, grew up in the same, the same army and we've seen the army change over time. And, and, that, and we could be stuck just as easy on your know, airland battle. Well, this is how we did it back in the day. But if you're not open-minded to it, you know, it, it really is a hard thing. You've got to let some of the old ideas you know, go. Some things relate, but but it is it's pretty hard to, you know, only thing harder, you know, putting a new idea in is pulling that old idea out first. And you, but that's an individual thing. You have to create that space. But I think going back to the point of podcast, I mean, how we're informing, how we do everything is part of it to me. The way I look at it is pulling some of those old ideas out so we can put something new in it, which we need to do. Well, and the other thing, sir, you know, we, we, uh, we try to build trust with, with folks mm -hmm. and, and, and get them, hey, have a little trust, have a little faith, right? Uh, we're not just dusting off old things. So you have to understand doctrines evolutionary. There were old ideas that become more important now. They may not manifest themselves the same way in the way that you conduct operations exactly, but there's old things that we were comfortable doing that we have to do very similar things now because the operational environments change. So the experience, and then people say, well, you're walking away from coin or uh, or these other things. We say, no, you're actually building upon some of those things. You recognize that in any sort of large war against a peer threat, you're gonna have conventional conflict and irregular warfare, you know, sometimes going on simultaneously. And so we're not walking away from anything. We're evolving to the requirements of the operational environment. And we're trying to do it in an intelligent way that's informed by our observations of the world around us and what our adversaries are potentially capable of doing. Yeah, and, and that's part of the you know new ideas too. But again, it, it's, it really twists your brain when you when you think about it. You know, a lot of things are the same, but you know, you go back to a common sense of we got to go back to the basics. Well, nowadays the basics have changed. If you haven't realized that, right? Um, so there are some basic things we can go back to, but the basics have changed. So even when we say something as simple as that, is we have to understand it. I don't think in, it wasn't until you know the 1950s or the last time we were contested in all domains, at least all domains that were you know, present then was Korea, right, in that, in that time frame. Whereas now, we look at our own imperatives, you know, we've never really had to account for 
you know, being under constant observation in all forms of contact. And the forms of contact are now changed as well in our doctrine. And so, again, so you can't say the basics, you know, apply. They do in a sense, but there are new things that we're going to have to add to what becomes basic to us as we go forward. It's funny that you bring up that imperative because I have a, I have a natural tension with the imperatives, sir, but there's also a certain sense that that stuff is now important in a way. And I, I, the minute that you said that, that, of pulling an old idea out, like, well, it's just the imperatives are repacking the principles of war, except now I'm also starting to realize as I go back and I look at this book after the fact that, no, you're absolutely right. There is a young generation out there that have never experienced these things before or have never come in contact with older doctrine or what we would consider OBE doctrine. And now, all right, well, this is, this is new to them. That means it's important for us to constantly be revisiting and reteaching it as something new and something good. Well, I think we approach this with a sense of humility to a very great extent. In fact, we talk about that at ASAP, see the Army Strategic Education Program for the general officers, right? You know, if you're a certain age, you do remember training against a, a like threat that had long-range fires and other types of capabilities. Well, okay, but what rank were you at when you were doing that? You were a platoon leader, a company commander maybe, maybe uh, a field grade officer. Uh, but now you're a division commander. That's a completely different area of responsibility that's much broader that encompasses a lot more things than platoon battle drills and, and digging in and those kinds of things. Um, the other thing, the, the, the humility piece of it, and it was certainly evident on our part as we're writing this thing is, you know, what is new? Do you actually understand the things that are different? All right, so we knew that the Russians had electronic warfare and, and chemical weapons and long range mass fires and all that. But what's different now, right? E electromagnetic warfare is a little different now because of cyberspace, right? And the global reach of those things that you're not just worried about uh, uh, line of sight capabilities collected on you. You've got to worry about the, the space capabilities uh, collected on you and that you're, you know, you, you're not just theoretically under continuous observation, you are under continuous observation. And if it's not uh, an adversary or enemy's space capabilities, then it's commercial imagery that's, that's available. So we, we all had to educate ourselves on this. It wasn't like, um, yeah, we've got it all figured out. Uh, and that's what made an iterative process and took a couple of years to do. Yeah. And that's, that's a great point, you know, Rich, you bring up too. Now that I think about it, because you're, you're absolutely right, you know, what level were you at? And, and even as you get your arms around, you know, something new, the doctrine as we laid it out with multi-domain, you know, back then at the tactical level, I mean, we're in the business of breaking problems down, right? You, you want to get into details, but that makes you comfortable, right? Because you, you broke it down. I, I got all the details and I can figure it out. That makes it easy. Well, now you're at a point, like I said, you go from brigade, division level, you know, core level up. We're in the business of expanding problems. You, you got to make them bigger. I mean, General Eisenhower said that. If you think you've got an unsolvable problem, expand it. And when you expand it, solutions tend to jump out. And, and it, but it's hard, you know, it's something that we're not comfortable with doing because we're used to just, let's break it down, let's dig into the details. Well, we just made it narrow and comfortable and we missed a lot. And I think, you know, the humility part of it is with the doctrine as we've laid it out, we, we've expanded a lot of problems just so we, we can see what, what shakes out. And so great on our part, great on the team's part here at CAD, Command Arms Doctrine, you know, to, to do that. But we've got to get everybody else's mind that are, you know, in the key positions now as a compared to the positions they were in you know earlier in their career you, you got to expand out to to really see this understand it get your arms around it if you so sir i actually want to talk or ask you about your your experience coming from 10th mountain 
because you were one of those one of those rare individuals who has straddled the line between seeing the initial draft and seeing the initial concepts of, of MDO and FM3O come out while you were still with 10th Mountain and then turning around and now seeing the implementation here with the Combined Arms Center. First of all, like, how did you guide your staff through that discussion? And then how have you seen, how, how has your perspective on the manual and the doctrine changed now that you're in the seat down the, down the way at Sherman? Yeah, so even before I got to 10th Mountain, going back to, you know, as we're talking multi-domain, you know, battle, you know, back with trade because the other luxury of my career is having the fortune of, for the last decade, to go back and forth between TRADOC and Forcecom. And so hearing it early, being on the Forcecom, or TRADOC side of it, is, you know, where you start to get your arms around, okay, what is this multi-domain battle? And just kind of watch that evolve over time. And then as we got closer and start developing multi-domain operations, you know, I didn't have any you know type of bad or negative connotation or like some people roll their eyes. You know, I didn't have, you know, the roll my eyes moment, you know, when all this is coming out because you, you're able to kind of see it gradually evolve over time. And during my time in 10th Mountain Division, I had a pretty good understanding of it, you know, and I think we were able to get the team to get their arms around it in our approach. And our approach was simply, we, we've got to educate ourselves, right? We've got to use the doctrine to, to educate ourselves, to see ourselves, and then go from there. And then that was very, very helpful. On the backside of that, you know, to the latter part of your question, coming here and seeing it is increase my knowledge. Because I mean, the deeper you dig into it, the more knowledgeable you're gonna get. Okay, now I understand why we're doing that that way. Why did we say that this way? Why did we define something that particular way? Whereas you may not, and I think our, during my time at, at Fort Drum, and, and understanding you know, my time there, we were working our way you know, to a warfighter. So again, Super Bowls for divisions. So you really gotta understand doctrine. You're coming out here to the great you know, Leavenworth and getting your academics. And some things we really didn't understand and we're using the terms. We're using, we were using convergence all day long. But we had educated ourselves enough that we're all on the same sheet of music. And, you know, and it was great to, to see that evolution with the team because you know, for the course of a year, and it wasn't all in preparation for the warfight. It was like, we gotta educate ourselves on the doctrine because we, it, it fundamentally goes back to how you started. We've gotta speak the, speak the same language. I mean, that's what we do when we wear the cloth of our nation is we, we've got a common language. We have to use that common language and know what it means. And it was very helpful to, to do that and to see the team, you know, wrestle with understanding, you know, the doctrine, you know, as written, you know, then it was still a lot of it in draft, but still pretty, pretty solid and very close to what we have today in the final version of it. But, but it helped, you know, quite a bit. What about controversial things? Like I'm thinking, it, how did your staff and how did you deal with dimensions, domains, un unpacking that because, you know, to come back around to it, like there are some new terms and there are some new concepts that are out there that we impart a lot of meaning to without necessarily having the background to talk about it. Yeah. Sometimes people say words and they don't mean what they think they mean. Uh, no, I, I would say with the dimensions and the domains, I mean, I. I I did highlight that or flag that in my brain as like one of the, I wouldn't call it controversial things, but confusing. But during my time in division, it was more, again, convergence, right? That was the thing that was like, what is this odd thing called convergence and how do we define it and get our, get our arms around it? But you could see it in terms of, you know, what we would do and I'd use, you know, targeting decision boards as an example. That's where we saw it come together because we educated ourselves to know enough to 
understand it. And then in that room, you know, typically, you, know, you wouldn't see in your targeting decision board your PAO officer. You wouldn't see your IO in the room. There's some others that you look around and you're like, why, why is the, the surgeon in the targeting decision board? Well, well it kind of matters. So, I mean, we figured things out or understood it enough to know if we're converging in the right windows and, and doing the right things and we can see it, then, then we need literally the entire team coming in to, to get the effects that we want. It goes back to the definition that you know, Rich talked about with regard to you know, what multi-domain is that combine arms employment, you know, joint and army capabilities, and we have them. I mean, you got the Air Force uh, person in the room and, and everybody's contributing, and then that's what gained us a better and a, a deeper understanding, you know, but I wouldn't say on the fly, but as you're going through a warfighter, like, okay, this is what convergence looks like. And then once everybody can generally see it, then it is, it's much better to pack everything else on around it. I think with the, be honest with you, domains, dimensions, we didn't talk a lot, but in, in the doctrine, you got the great 3D graphic, so that was good enough. You're like, okay, I, I can see that. We got five domains, three three dimensions, and that's, that's good enough to get your arms around. But it was more really the tenets, the imperatives, you know, as we laid them out that we were, I wouldn't say wrestling with, but but getting an understanding of. Do you have a favorite tenant? <laughs> Convergence. Because that's the one everybody focuses on, yeah. you know? And and the, the beauty of it is just, you know, the, the concentrated employment of, you know, all your capabilities against, you know, multiple uh, decisive points. I mean, that's really what it's about. And even though it, it sounds pretty simple how, based on how we've defined it, it's much harder to do. But even that, when you, you get everybody to understand, yes, PAO, you have a role in, you know, convergence. Well, how? I mean, watch us, watch us sense, watch us shoot, and then go to social media and then see what you can tell us. Oh, that feedback feeds in. That, that is all part of, you know, convergence. And how do you see it in terms of, as you're laying things out, I mean, I think today we wrestle with, you know, the the Air the Army uh, Air Force Tasking Order a, mm-hmm. ATO. Right. You know, how does that fit in? Well, that's not going to fit the model and everything else. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe or maybe not, but but you can still make it work. You've got to be a little bit creative, and we use the ATO to lay out. Here's the effects we're going to have, I and mean, we got to the point of talking in a language of, here's the effects we're going to have. But then, as a commander, you know, I got smarter because now I got to ask, well, how long am I going to have that effect? And how many times can you replicate that effect? And if the answer wasn't right, then you could clearly see a gap. Well, we're not converging, and we've missed our you know window to converge. But everybody started to understand that you know together as a team, and it was you know just great. But we're always using doctrine as you know kind of the guide rail to walk us through it. Oh, that makes me happy. So <laughs> well, and you were doing it before we even finished it, which was even better. So, yeah. so I mean, uh, that's helpful because actually the feedback that we got from uh, your experiences and then some of the other folks that were trying to do the same thing was actually very helpful for us. Our, my least favorite tenant is convergence because it's the one that's the toughest. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wants to talk about it and and, uh, the other ones are all equally important. And when you start to peel all those things back and you say all the components that would allow you to achieve convergence, all the things that you have to be able to do to be agile, Mm-hmm. to achieve depth, to uh, demonstrate endurance. There's a million little things that all have to come together, which means everybody's got their role in terms of training, leader development, enforcing standards, practicing repetition. Uh, because, it, again, we didn't want to go down some road because, you know, that's one of the problems with convergences. Oh, you guys are just going back to EBO and effects-based operations. or. Uh, uh, purely systems warfare. You're just planking targets. 
but when we talk about the definition, we talk about it achieving those downstream effects against the physical, uh, geographical area, a decision maker, uh, an enemy formation or an enemy capability like an air integrated air defense systems or integrated fires complex. Uh, it's much more to it. So, so you, you talk about um, contra controversy, right? Things that were not well received. What's crazy, uh, and it's, it's funny, it's not crazy is probably not the right word, but it's been funny since we published this thing, the arguments you get in with people is this, no, that's not what that means. Yeah. And, and you're like, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. I do not know what that means because we wrote it. And, and, yeah. and so, <laughs> but the reason why that, that, that push, a little bit of pushback, and as soon as you talk to people, it goes away. But um, the reason it exists is we kind of let the cat out of the bag way early. And we're talking about multi-domain battle, multi-domain operations for years, yeah. and it was in briefings and slides, and there were all kinds of diagrams, and none of it was finalized yet. Right. So everybody kind of interpreted the way that, that they were thinking. Some people had read the concept, some people had not, some people had um, gotten a briefing, some had not, some people had just seen slides, some had not, and so I think that tends to, what controversies we do have tend to be a result of that as opposed to someone reading and saying, I don't, I don't agree with, with that idea in the book. Yeah. Um, I will say some of the controversial articles, um, the scholarly work that came out of the military when prior to publication helped the authors be able to structure or be, to be prepared for those kinds of things. Because if, if people are discussing it, that means that there is a gap in understanding or there is friction points yeah. in understanding. So therefore, we need to make sure that we cover that in the way that we write or the way that we produce the doctrine. So that was, for the Army to provide that feedback early, that was wonderful. What I hope to see is continued feedback over the course of the next couple of years, so that way we can continue to refine. Yeah, and I think the thing I appreciate from, you know, outside looking in before I got to CAC is how, you know, the team here did that. It was It was very transparent, and I think that's the, the beauty of it, is you do. You get, everybody gets to kind of poke at it, you get the feedback, you continue to work your way through it. So you, you reduce a lot of anxiety, you reduce a lot of confusion and all those things. So it's the level of transparency, which I don't think Rich and I saw, you know, growing up with doctrine, it would come out and be like, there it is, and you kind of go from there. But but as Rich pointed out, I mean, it was years of just kind of, you know, letting people get their nose under the tent flap to, to see it. But but again, like Rich pointed out, there's a danger with that because then now we're all over the place, you know, with, with terms and you got to clean that up. And the one thing that, and it's not a tenet or an imperative that, you know, is controversial to me, but the one thing that, that drives me batty is is the term multi-domain. And it's not that I don't like the term, it's like everybody <laughs> wants to label everything multi-domain. And I even said it, you know, during, you know, AUSA rollout, I'm like, look, we're not going to label, we're not going to have multi-domain squads running around. Do not get this confused, you know, because, we, you know, we have a tendency to do that. It's like, if we don't know, we'll just label everything. Oh, it's all multi -domain. I mean, that's no, how we're no, relevant, not. right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm going to be relevant. We're doing multi-domain field feeding. Yeah, right? you know, and it's like, no, you're not. And, and, and so you kind of, you kind of work your way away from that as well, but I joked on Twitter that unless it comes from the multi multiple domain region of doctrine, then it's just sparkling combined arms, <laughs> and yeah, that that spun some people up. I'm yeah. not gonna not gonna lie. Well, and I'll tell you, I think the other thing that um, it may not be controversial yet, but I think at some point it, it may be, be become. You know, we use warfighting functions as an as an organizing construct for how we think about organizing ourselves and employing different parts of the Army forces in some sort of coherent manner uh, to achieve objectives. And that's fine 
so far as it goes. But when you talk the modernization side, and you have to get into the specifics. And so we don't talk about multi-domain sustainment or multi-domain fires or cross-domain this and cross-domain that. That That is the thing that drives us, Patty, is people want to, because we're in the original future concept. Um, but I mean, an artillery piece is on the ground, it shoots a shell that goes through the air, and then it lands on the ground again. So that's cross-domain fires, right? And Or a, a airborne soldiers falling, jumping out of airplanes are, is cross-domain uh, movement or potentially maneuver. So it's not useful to use that. Just talk about specifically what it is that we want to do. If you're, are you talking about, uh, so information warfare is not a thing that we use, but are you talking about electronic or electromagnetic attack? Are you talking about offensive cyber? What is it exactly that you're talking about? Because we need an army that's got capabilities that can be employed in a combined arms fashion as part of the joint force. So talk specifically about what it is that you mean and, and don't use euphemisms or the warfighting functions as a way to do that. You can organize all that under the warfighting functions, but we quickly uh, devolve into non-specific things when you, when you start talking at that broad six category thing instead of saying EW or civil affairs or psyops. I mean, yeah. use, the, use the real words. Well, and that's really risky when you stand back because mm. right now these are making MDO and FM30 are making their way out into the rest of the doctrine community. That includes NATO as well, joint and allied partners. So when I, I kind of want to ask that question. How are our allied partners and how are our joint brethren receiving this? Because my favorite tenant, Endurance, requires a land force that is capable of, of remaining and supporting the joint force commander. How is the joint community coming to terms with that? because everybody loves Air Force. Everybody. Yeah, I'll, I'll let Rich tackle the, the, <laughs> the joint piece because I know he's, he's had more interactions and engagements on the joint side than I have at this point. I'm sure that the Land Warfare Center is listening very closely to this right now, too. <laughs> well, so let's start at the, the joint level, and then we'll talk about our, our multinational uh, partners and allies. But um, if you acknowledge that joint operations are inherently all domain, and that's what a joint force is, that's the secret sauce of the U.S. Armed Forces, is that we take a joint approach to the operations we conduct, and each of the services within it are inherently multi-domain. So they focus on one particular domain, where the land. Uh, the Marines would argue they're the ultimate all-domain force, and we don't argue back. I mean, you know, air, sea, and land. Uh, and they've got, you know, cyber stuff and, and a space component, too. Um, but once we got all the services to agree that they are themselves multi-domain in their own approach and that the joint approach is inherently all-domain, we stopped talking about things like joint all-domain operations, which is like saying joint-joint, right? Department Redundancy Department. So, uh, and then we said, hey, the other thing is we're not trying to trespass on the prerogatives of the other forces. We're trying to be complementary and reinforcing to your roles and responsibilities just like you are to ours. In fact, we're trying to become more joint. And so multi-domain operations is not only inherently joint, but it's the most explicitly joint capstone operations doctrine we've ever written, and we acknowledge that. And we talk, that's why we specifically talk about the employment of Army and joint capabilities, not just for convergence, but in the definition of MDO itself. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the other is the recognition that we need cooperation 
to be able to achieve those things, right? We need access to your schools and our leaders and uh, staffs, commanders and so forth have to be educated in your capabilities just like you need to be educated in ours. If we're gonna enable you, uh, and, and that's another kind of a new big idea, right? Uh, we get away from this idea that the land component is always the supported component because we've been accustomed to always being the supported component for uh, since the end of the Cold War, essentially. But there are different scenarios potentially out there where we're going to have to employ land forces, we being the United States uh, Joint Force, employ land capabilities to enable the air and maritime components for, for, of a Joint Force commander. Uh, and we, that's not new. It's just new to us in, in terms of relative experience. Uh, and there's plenty of historical examples of that being true. So once everybody understood that we're not trying to take over the world, uh, in fact, we're trying to uh, operate in a way that makes sense in, in a world that's more complicated now, uh, I think most of the antibodies went away. Now, if you get into places where people are competing for money, that's a different issue. It's not a doctrinal issue. I mean, the resource competition is always going to be something different. Uh, but there's no pushback in terms of uh, what role we're taking on in terms of the preeminent ground force for the, for the U.S. Joint Force. How do you both see this working out for NATO? Now, now I'll throw something out there and I'll see what General Beagle thinks. Uh, and don't want to cause anybody any excitement out there in NATO world that, that are listening. But there were folks that decided that NATO needed to have an MDO concept. Um, and so there were been folks been working on that. Uh, but they did it without uh, really understanding where we were going with what we had. And so if NATO is a multinational alliance of nations and a national coalition is inherently all domain, then why do you need an MDO concept? Why don't you address those pieces of the alliance that get to sensitive areas that we haven't quite worked out? Uh, but calling it multi-domain operations and then creating something that's different than what, what uh, the U.S. Army is doing is, is, I think, quite a big opportunity for confusion. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and going to your point, Nikki, about allies, I mean, see the same thing. I mean, I haven't heard any negative or, you know, controversial things from allies. Uh, and Rich has traveled, you know, around more extensively as this is rolled out and, and working with partners and allies. But but same thing Rich said about NATO. You know, and I won't say the, the country, but, you know, Rich and I were both there together. And as we're listening to their brief, their version of multi-domain operations, well, they have, you know, eight dimensions. And, and they weren't poking at us. But again, it's like, well, we're, we're kind of saying the same things. I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying, but it's that room for confusion. And I, and I do agree with Rich is, you know, we should be looking for those areas where, you know, how do we cover and close gaps? Because certain gaps are going to be there. I mean, like, you know, Rich talked about when we have sustainment, Fires, we, we just know, given the complexity of the operating environment, where some of those gaps are going to be, so let's work those. I mean, the biggest thing that's always talked about with our partners and allies is uh, interoperability. So, again, how do, we, how do we close those gaps, you know, as well? But the thing that we should not do is confuse ourselves more because if we look at, you know, our dimensions compared to your dimensions, and then, but that makes sense for you and your environment. I mean, so when I, when I heard this particular, you know, partner say, we, you know, we've got eight dimensions, I looked at their environments like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. I mean, I'm not going to push back and say you've got it wrong or all screwed up, but it kind of makes sense. But in the bigger sense, again, not saying we're 100% we're right, is 
look at our dimensions and, and look at what we're trying to communicate. I mean, this is how we see our effects. And, you know, this, those three dimensions that we can, you know, see our effects in. And, but that made sense to them too, but they weren't going to change, you know, from that. So it does create room for a lot of confusion if we're not careful with our partners and allies in NATO. I think probably one of the, I had a friend ask me that actually about the whole, you know, well, how do we deviate, how do we deviate from NATO doctrine? How do we deviate from, from AVCAN's joint doctrine, everything else? And it's like, well, sometimes deviation occurs and it's done intentionally by the authors and it's done with a very deliberate intent. And that's okay. And we get approval. Yeah, we get approval to do it. I mean, we don't just, you know, go so off on our own, do it on our own, own rodeo <laughs> or, or whatever. Well, and even still, just reading the books themselves, even if you're, you know, it doesn't matter if you're on a division staff or on a core staff, the important thing is you should be reading Joint Doctrine. You should be reading NATO Doctrine. Mm -hmm. It's okay to do that stuff and still have a foundation firmly set in Army Doctrine as wow. well. But you have, a, all right, so you talk multinational and joint, but there's actually another uh, audience that oh. wants to know, like, what this means to them, and that's the lower tactical echelons. Oh. And you can relate the lower, say, brigade and below, yeah. to, um, the, to actually the perspectives of the joint and, uh, and, and allies or partners audiences as well, in that there's plenty of things that we all need to do to get better. And the last thing we need to be arguing about is, is, is multi-domain operations. I mean, there's fundamental things that we have to be better at even to prosecute any type of operations, much less something grandiose against a, a peer threat, whether it's sustainment, logistics, and so forth, whether it's the interoperability that, that the CG talked about in terms of uh, our command and control systems. That's a huge piece of this, enormous, and it's got to be inside out, Army, and then joint, and then allies and partners. And luckily, there's a lot of smart people out there working on this stuff. but. Uh, you know, one of the foundational things in the first chapter of the book is that we don't conduct operations. First of all, all our operations are multi-domain operations. Second, they're all joint operations. And third, they're almost, without exception, multinational operations. Uh, and we think and talk about operating as ally, an ally or a partner, and not just with allies and partners. And we have a responsibility to do that as well. So how should, sir, I'm gonna pull on this a little bit for you. Uh -oh. yeah. Okay. If you could go back to your, back to your time and sit you know, in, your, in your little desk in Fort Drum, like how would you guide your staff, as a, as a key member of the, you know, the planning process and the commander, how would you guide your staff to approach this idea of multi-domain operations and to prepare and plan and for execution, you know, especially guiding brigades and the employment of brigades. Going now, you know, away from this idea of, of brigades being the unit of action and now a division being the unit of action. Yeah, so I, I would say it was, for me, blunt force trauma well, it was, was one approach. And, and again, because you have to, and I say that you know, jokingly because you have to break the mindset a bit and it goes to your, your, latter, your last point, going from brigade-centric to division-centric. So in a room with you know, battalion commanders, company commanders, sergeant majors, brigade commanders, you know, as the division commander, I said, look, your toys are no longer your toys. They're my toys, right? Because we, we have to leverage all the capabilities that we have in the division. And, and that, again, is a, another reason, you know, for the, the shift, given where we were the last couple of decades to, you know, multi-domain, 
is we have to leverage everything. And oh, by the way, the, the point that you know Rich keeps you know talking about is our contribution to joint operations. I mean, we're we're a contributor in all this, and we and we've got to understand the joint perspective. Therefore, you know, I'm not saying brigade battalion commanders you can't leverage and use all the capabilities that you have, but but our connection to hire is we have to use them in a different way, and we have to continue to maintain our roots of you know those you know tactical echelon units. You're still close combat is your thing. Combined arms operations, that's your thing. But when it comes to capabilities, you know that's got to be you know my thing along with the division staff, the core staff to make sure you have you know what you need. And and it did you know as we we looked at the operational framework. I mean other things, it started to make sense. And and as we played it out in the warfighter, it really did make sense. You know to where if you had all your stuff and so you lost your toys then we're in trouble. But now that we're protecting them, because I've got the assets connected to core to help protect you know, some of the assets that we really need, then it, it created a belief in you know, how this all really works out, even at the tactical level, if that makes sense. It does, it makes a lot of sense actually. How, do you think that's changed from, from when you were a younger officer? Has that, is that different from what it was back when say you were a, a captain or you were on a staff yourself in division? And I would say in terms of like our toys. So, I mean, yeah, you wanted all your toys, you know, in the last 20 years, you created the need. I want my toys. I mean, and you want it more because that's what we were doing. We were, you know, making our, our close combat forces, I use the term heavyweights. We're making them heavyweights because, you know, the fight was right there. And, and I think that was all exactly what we needed to do dealing with, you know, uh, Cohen and counterinsurgency and Iraq and Afghanistan. But now it's, you know, it's just a different environment where we've got to, you know, make forces go back to our tenants. You know, you got to be agile. You got to have endurance. And then how do we, you know, sustain that over time? That's what you've really got to get your arms around and understand. But but a fundamental shift, yes, from, you know, our younger days, but going back to the point about basics, some things really haven't changed. Still, we've got to focus on and be very good at combined arms, you know, operations. Sir, how about you? I just... One thing that became obvious to us, I think, as we talked about, because we say it in the doctrine, but um, the division is a principal tactical formation for large-scale combat operations. And then, you know, unit of action comes in because that was what was it from when we were in Sam's yeah. 20 years ago, right. and that was the future concept for FCS. Like UEY and UEX and, and all yeah, that stuff. All that stuff. Um, well, so we talked about it as a principal tactical formation, but we shouldn't do it at, at the expense of understanding that it's a formation because it's it's consists of functional multifunctional brigades and BCTs and, and, and specialized battalions and then it generally fights as part of a core right so it's kind of in that middle space it still worries about close operations and defeating the enemy closing with and destroying the enemy right and it sets conditions to do that and it fights the brigades um, but it's part of a larger team too and so you don't want to neglect the cores uh, any more than you want to neglect the tools that the division brings, you know, to bear on behalf of the Corps commander. So, um, because we anticipated this, because of that feedback and, and some of the things people were talking about, we had to go back just before we, we published and made sure it was very clear. It was more than just setting conditions, right? Corps fight divisions, divisions fight brigades. Um, they set conditions for them, but they fight them uh, and, and they determine what their objectives are and, and their resources and, and then the 
the joke at the ACFC, which is, you know, what's yours is yours and what's yours is mine. <laughs> All about kind the toys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it gets back to we get beyond um, the modular mindset where everything's fixed. And you go back to an, uh, a mindset that requires, again, agility, right? Um, to say we task organize the purpose. Uh, and we do that continuously throughout the conduct of operations or even a campaign. Do you see that there's any other gaps now that have been addressed with FM3O that are still existing in doctrine? Yeah, I think there's a lot. We're going to be pretty busy in TRADOC and CAC for a few years. Um, a couple things that we've identified already because people have been working on things up to a point before we went final and then we have to go back and and look at those things but say lower tactical doctrine right uh if you if you say a, uh, an imperative is to make contact with the smallest force and we describe that as unmanned systems for for example you know we know fort benning's working on all right so what does bounding overwatch look like bounding overwatch for a company team now means i may be utilizing handheld uas's or for a bct in a movement to contact you know, larger unmanned systems or, or manned systems as well, uh, or systems that are looking out from a different domain like, like space or even potentially cyberspace. So uh, there's a lot of implications there that have to get worked in under the low-level doctrine. And we also are going to need time for people to have, absorb this and use it uh, and think through implications because it's the community of practice out in the field that's getting the repetitions that are going to see nuances and they're going to say, hey, this is great, but how about this and that, and you forgot about this or add that, or maybe this doesn't work and this would be a better idea. And so uh, there's always going to be some gaps. Uh, I think another thing that became obvious to us is if this book is largely focused on conventional conflict, then we need a capstone uh, publication on irregular conflict, and we don't have that, um, and we haven't had one for a very long time. Um, and I think that's a forcing function for us to capture the goodness uh, and avoid the badness of the last uh, 30 years or so. Um, and then we're working on a book on information. And so this 3.0 has is everything that we think, the direction we thought we were going, and it's going to be pretty close. Um, but we'll probably have to make a quick tweak to it when we release the capstone publication on information, which is you know in the works now. Because that's a huge part of a multi-domain approach to operations, and the MDO approach in 3.0 is informing that that publication, ADP 313. Um, but the actual information pieces of that publication are going to go back and, and influence uh, a change one to, to 3.0. It won't be enough to cause anybody any concern. Nobody has to wait. Uh, oh, I've got to wait for the change one because everything that's in there on information now is, is, is accurate, but we want to be able to refine it a little bit. So that's what I think uh, things that we have to do. Yeah. No, and, and Rich, I, I would agree. The, the thing that, you know, the force has to understand too is there, there, there are a lot of gaps. I mean, nobody said, you know, FM3O is perfect or anything that we've ever published is perfect. But when you look at the gaps that we have and the things that we know we have to do now associated with, with FM3O and multi-domain operations, is all the downtrace doctrine that, that has to you know, come out as well. And that, that'll help close a lot of gaps. But it's going to take trust, as, as Rich mentioned earlier, to, to get us to that point. But I heard somebody make a, a very you know, awesome observation, and I forget where I was, but you know, we were talking doctrine, 
and and the person had a very optimistic view, which I love optimistic people. <laughs> and you know, and they said, yeah, we, we we have gaps, we have challenges, but with practice. And that was a caveat. So we may not have it perfect in terms of you know how we figure all this out, how we do it, how we train it, but with practice, we're going to get better. And and what they meant was the practice. It is going to be our training. It is going to be the deployments that we're constantly, uh, continually doing. You know, at this point, but with practice, you know, we will get there. And that's one thing I think sometimes we forget about. You know, is is we're an army. We 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 have to do things. We have to be very good at what we do, which means we have to practice. So it's not like, and the young audience won't appreciate this one, but it's not like Alan Iverson of like practice. What are you talking about? Practice. <laughs> yeah, we have to practice. You know, and to us that means training. And and in that way. You know, we figure out what works, what doesn't work. We feed that back into the system, and that's the beauty of, of what we do, especially with our doctrine. It evolves. It's iterative, and, and that's the, the great thing, but it's going to take a lot of trust to, to let that play out, you know, over time. Everybody does their piece, and, and, and we, will, we will get it. We will continue to be as good as we've ever been. How has, especially given the fact that we've, I think everybody's watched very closely, operations in the Nagorno-Karabakh, operations in Ukraine, um, how is reading FM 3.0 now, and from your both of your experience and perspectives, has it changed the way that you've looked at those conflicts, and how have you absorbed some of the lessons learned there, and do you think it will ultimately start influencing the way that we look at our body of knowledge now here in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I would say to me, very illuminating. I mean, when you watch you know, Nagorno-Karabakh, you understand what happened earlier, you know, uh, with Russia, Ukraine, and and then you read the doctrine, you're like, hey, we're we're on it. We, we we can see this. That's been integrated into you know what we're doing, and and it proves a point. This is why certain things. It should answer a lot of why questions. Just look at you know both of those conflicts that you pointed out of why we we're doing things the way we we're doing them and why we've made some of the changes. So when I say illuminating, is you can look through the the lens of our doctrine and and see. You know, you see back, you see Nagorno-Karabakh, you see what's going on currently in Russia, Ukraine, and you're like, yeah, we're, we are accounting for those things. We're trying to adjust ourselves so that doesn't happen to us. You know, and, and now I won't say we, we have the luxury, unlike, you know, we've had the past couple of decades, everybody's had the luxury of studying us. Now we have, you know, a bit of a luxury, at least a small luxury, to look and study other things and factor that in to make ourselves better. Yes, sir, and I, I would agree with that. And I, I would also say that uh, I think 3.0 is about right, but we've, got, we've recognized that there's a lot of other books that need to catch up, as I mentioned yeah. earlier. But there's uh, another thing that I think is important, which is as important as those things are. You know, and, and we had pushback in 2017, WISCO. We're never going to do WISCO. Nobody's going to do that stuff, right? And then right in living color. Over the last year, uh, we've seen it go on in the real world. Um, I think there's, we got to remember though, that's not the totality, the totality of the threats out there, or certainly not the totality of locations in the world where we might be likely to fight. And so you asked about things earlier that might have been a little bit of pushback on, you know, the, the chapter we have is operations in largely maritime domains, uh, which you had a role in writing. Um, I think uh, that's one of those chapters that you have to read with your eyes open and your imagination on because it was written to help people visualize certain things and to give prompts in terms of being prepared for a, you know another adversary uh, that, that has far greater capacity 
uh, in everything other than nuclear weapons uh, in a very different physical operational environment um, that we as a nation have experience with, but no one really has experience for 80 years uh, in dealing with. Uh, so I think that's a big deal too, and, and that that causes me concern in that uh, if there was one chapter in the book that we need feedback on to get people to say, hey, we need more, because it, it's not a real long chapter, um, and we need to put some more energy, intellectual energy, into this, yeah. uh, I think that's the one. Yeah, and it, and it gets harder, because, I mean, it does. It, it allows you to zoom out, expand out on, you know, looking at this from the perspective of other theaters, too. And I think that's the great thing it's, it's allowed us to do is, you know, kind of break away from the theaters we've been, you know, used to for a couple of decades and then now start seeing, and this looks vastly different in a different theater. And, oh, by the way, in some cases, depending on the theater, uh, it's a much harder challenge. And so, you know, the, the depth that Rich talked about, just with Maritime alone, is like, think about a theater where there's a lot of water and it makes the problems much more complex. Yeah. And then introduce maybe some ice or perhaps oh, yeah. introduce you know, that, that idea of when we were first kind of wrestling with this, oh, well, it's always the purview of the Marines, except, oh, wait, Marines no longer have an armor force. And even when it did, it was not a substantial one. Again, it brings me back to this idea of endurance and why the United States Army is so crucial to a joint fight in a maritime dominant environment. Well, it also gets back to that complementary aspects of the service is complementary and reinforcing. So the, the Marine Corps uh, Expeditionary Advanced Basing Operations concept, they talk about the idea of a stand-in force, right? And it's about moving in, doing some things, moving and staying agile and doing that. Uh, we very specifically put in the introduction in the Army, U.S. Army is the stand-on force, right? And we can do stand-in kind of things too, you know, with MDTFs and, and other types of formations. But that's the Marines' primary role and responsibility, right, to do that. Ours is to, to hold seas and hold terrain, right, and, and to protect what you have forward for the rest of the joint force because it's those land masses that enable, and essentially that's what you're fighting over, right? It's, it's control of land masses uh, or access to those land masses because that's where people live and resources uh, that enable economies and so forth are, are largely uh, existent. The, uh, and I think the other thing, going back to General Beagle's point earlier, you know, observations in, in Ukraine in, in particular, because it, we have more information than we had for Nagorno-Karabakh, um, a lot of those old-fashioned fundamental things that a World War II veteran or a World War I veteran would view as second nature, or even a veteran in 1968 in Vietnam um, would be very familiar with, and certainly someone in Korea, you know, in, in the relatively static aspects of that conflict. You know, massed artillery is the number one killer in the world. You present yourself as a lucrative target, uh, you're going to have a real problem. And their ways to sense you, to identify you as a lucrative target, are much more pervasive than they were uh, even 20 years ago. So those kinds of things, it's accommodating that the world as it is, but understanding that those old ideas, those fundamentals, those tenets and imperatives uh, exist for a reason. And I, we don't have anybody that's ever experienced. Who's ever experienced an army that's still serving a, a sustained artillery bombardment? Nobody. Yeah. Uh, and yet, that's probably 70% of the casualties in this war uh, in Europe so far. So, and that's just one, one piece, but you know, when was the last time we lost multiple aircraft on a mission? And yet that's happened on both sides 
over there. Uh, but it's not the same, right? Because red air is now, I've got these pervasive UASs and, and all that. And so red air is very different, you know, and it, it's not just flying at 10,000 feet or 400 feet. It might be flying at 15 feet, right? And so you've got uh, a lot of other things to consider. Yeah. The, I was hoping you were going to use the stand in, stand on, because I, I, I jotted it down in my notes, but you, you tell it much better. And but you know, even thinking through that and going back to your favorite tenant, Nikki, of endurance, I mean, there's a, a very easy way to explain endurance, too. I mean, we, we are a stand-on force. And whenever I hear Rich say that, I, I love it, you know, talking about stand-in versus stand-on and, you know, the difference between the two, that's really us. And, again, it's that, you know, tie back to, you know, what we're saying in doctrine, you know, why we said it and, and what it means. I mean, and it's, and it's to each individual you know their interpretation of it we still have to understand the definitions but but how do you make it make meaning to you and it was uh, a social media post i saw from dr greer over in sam's and a student posted what they were reading i posted what i was reading and somebody comes back with i'm reading on war so clausewitz right so everybody at leavenworth reads clausewitz so if you're coming to leavenworth you're going to read on war right um, and and that's what dr greer said he said you know you've got to read in such a way it means something to you and, and I thought that was great. So read it slow and, you know, and, and read it in such a way, you know, you find those things that mean something to you. Everything else will start to build onto it. And I thought that was brilliant. And I think that's the approach with, with our doctrine is like, yeah, read it. You're going to have to read it several times, you know, and get your arms around it. But, you know, read it in such a way that it means something to you. And then that's going to, you know, get that intellectual curiosity going, which is what we want, you know, across the force at multiple echelons so, so we can see ourselves better. Units can see themselves better. And, and we can all be on a common you know, sheet of music when we talk multi-domain operations, what that means in a large-scale combat you know, operations environment. Yeah. So over the next few months, there's going to be teams of personnel going out from the Combined Arms Center and from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate to various Division Corps headquarters. And it's the idea of we're discussing FM3O, we're discussing MDO with them, and it's what we call the roadshow for the, the release of the book. And we've also released... Doctrine Digest videos, we've had a series of podcasts about it, um, all of it meant to be a tool to help instruct and to help others have a discussion about what this doctrine will mean to them. From your experience at 10th Mountain, sir, what would you offer your fellow division commanders and their staffs as they train and they continue to prepare themselves for, for future conflicts? Yeah, you, you have to educate yourself, and, and the team here knows me enough now to know I like to use a lot of you know crazy analogies. But we can't, you know, we can't be the uh, use football as an example. We can't be the football player that doesn't watch tape, and we don't watch film. It's the same as our doctrine. We can't, you know, be that that force that doesn't read our own doctrine. I mean, you go back. I think you know, Rich, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was Patton, you know, looking out, you know, at Rommel, going, "You bastard, you read our doctrine." You know, we we can't be Patton. And, and so we have to read our own stuff. I mean, there's plenty of examples in the sports world of, you know, one athlete, you know, the coach gives him a tape, there's nothing on it, he goes home and is like, hey, you watched that tape last night? He's like, oh, I got it, coach, I'm good to go. If I give you FM30, you know, you, you need to go read it. And, and we've got to educate ourselves, but take the time to do it. That was something I said at the Army Profession Forum because one of my favorite chapters in it, believe it or not, uh, is Chapter 8, you know, uh, leadership during operations. And understanding that, because it, not, it don't, not only talks about things that we fundamentally talk about with regard to leadership, but is how do you lead in a you know multinational environment? I mean, it, that that's in our doctrine as well, and some people don't you know didn't know that. 
but you but you have to educate yourself on it to where you know you you're taking the time and that was really the key time is a precious resource but you have to take the time to do your leader development sessions your your sessions where you're you're sending your leaders down to to do check on learn and check on knowledge uh, then you step forward right that that's the thing that's really going to be be key to you know divisions cores out there is take that time to educate the force and we're going to be much better off yeah we <laughs> you remember sir uh when you're a, a platoon or a company commander nobody said hey let's go out and do some airland battle <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right i mean that's not what we did oh, we had mission sets images. right you were we were generally working on defense and then a counterattack kind of thing, but because that's the world that you lived right. in, and that was the scenarios that you thought maybe were most likely. Uh, but all the preparation, training, and repetition, the thinking about things, the explaining—not just the big ideas, because the big ideas aren't that hard. Like the CG said, they're pretty simple for a reason. Well, the big idea in airline battle was simple too, right? You're not going to win if the only place you're killing people is in direct fire range. Right? If you're not engaging them through the depth of their formations, they're going to run right over you. All right? In the world we live in now, that depth is much broader, and the things that can hurt you can reach out much further. And we may not be defending. We may be attacking, but we, we may be defending, too. It's not an either-or. It's a both. Uh, so there are an awful lot of things to work on, and you don't have to put the words multi-domain in front of them. It's fundamental things in, in understanding what the threat can do uh, and all the thing, the countermeasures you can do to mitigate harm in that respect. Uh, because it's the way that you conduct all the training unique to your formation and your echelon that's important. You're just doing it in a way that you understand how you fit into this larger hole. And the larger hole is blue and the larger hole, uh, hole is red as well. Um, and I think that's hugely important. And I think the CTCs, I mean, and, and MCTP Warfighter, I think they do a pretty good job of replicating that. Because I was telling you, sir, we were out at NTC a couple weeks ago, uh, and these guys say, well, what does this mean for the brigades and the battalions? So I said, well, you know, uh, are you getting attacked by uh, drone swarms? Yep. Long-range fires? Uh-huh. Electromagnetic warfare? Mm-hmm. Offensive cyber? Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. And are you using all the stuff that you guys have you know, as best you can to, to counter that. Right. I say, well, you're doing all the main operations already. So just keep working on that. And now how are we doing at it? Well, we're not very good at it, right? We get better. By the end of the rotation, when most of the units get, you know, pretty decent. Well, okay. We have to get a lot better, yeah. right? Yeah. And, it, you know, when you talk about, you remember sort of the perspective thing. Everybody said, wow, you know, we used to be so good at this stuff in the 1990s. And I'm thinking back to myself, to my Hohenfels and NTC rotations. I don't remember winning no, very much. We no, so, no, not at all. You know, we were better as a writ large, but we weren't winning all the time. And we held ourselves to a much higher standard. Uh, that's the wrong way of putting it. We held ourselves to a very high standard, and you seldom achieved it. But when you did, you felt really good about it. But doing that put us in the position to uh, do very well in the Desert Storm. And only F1, and hopefully other places. But they're, again, they're not going to be the same kind of fights. Yeah. But we, but you said a key thing, Rich. We got to rely on, you know, it's, it's the repetitions. And sometimes we, even something as simple as that, you know, reps and sets. You hear that a lot, heard that a lot, you know, on the force comm side of it in a division. And I use it myself. But you always have to explain what do we, what do we mean when we say we have to get reps and sets. You have to get the, the CTCs offered to you, the warfighters offered to you. 
But what does it gain you? You know, repetition breeds competence. Competence breeds confidence. And then confidence breeds mastery. And that's where you really want to get to. So you can master it. And even if you're getting a problem you can't solve, like Rich pointed out with the, the CTC examples, if you get a problem that, you know, you can't solve, you're probably going to think of, of a different way to kind of crack that code, you know, at some point in time. But it's through those, you know, reps and sets that you're getting that's allowing you to, to think different, to use, you know, the tools that you do have in different ways. And as we modernize, guess what? It's probably going to make it a little bit better, but you still have to do the same thing even with that. You know, it's always the, 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 the fact of, you know, action, reaction, counter reaction. We get something that works. Well, guess what? Somebody's trying to come up with a counter reaction to, you know, counter, you know, what we've come up with. It's funny that you bring up modernization because you think of, and sir, we've talked about this before, the idea of how long it takes to get through the process of modernization. Cast aside POM and PEG and all of the, the processes that go along with that, but solely look at the idea of getting equipment out that would solve problems for, for tactical formations. That takes years, decades even. Like how long did it go from when you were confronted with problems that's an airline battle to the point where you actually had a material solution that probably was already solved by doctrine or probably was already solved by training? Well, it wasn't on all or nothing. It was you had to, you had to train the doctrine, yeah. right? And then as the tools improved, you could execute those things better and better. So the tools improved. But even if you had the old tools, you still had to do it that way or you were going to lose. Right? So when you had the old tools, it might be more expensive in, cost, in terms of time or, or, or casualties or so forth, but at least you had a chance of winning. Um, but as soon as the tools started to come online, the larger and larger parts of the Army became uh, better equipped to achieve those things. But the doctrine was never predicated on just the tools. Yeah. I mean, it was, hey, this is the approach that you have to do. If, you just, if we don't do this, you're not going to win. But that doesn't mean you're going to hoo your way through things. I mean, there's no cure to you know, air defense uh, or sustainment. You're not, you don't get gas, you're not going anywhere, yeah. right? And so leadership by itself isn't going to solve everything. High morale is not going to solve it. Uh, it's all together. That's why we have that old Dotmill PFP. Uh, approach to modernization, so you're not forgetting some aspect of the, the solution. Yeah, and, and Rich is spot on because again, we, we come you know from the the same the same roots you know in a in a big sense because you know I'll date myself badly here. And when I came out of you know the the basic course you know as a second lieutenant, my first unit was a heavy unit, and so we're learning there to doctrine and everything else. But we're also hearing about things, you know, with regard to modernization. So, you know, I know I'm going to a heavy unit, and we're modernization-wise, you know, all units are going to have Bradleys and M1 tanks and, you know, the Big Five and all of that. Well, the unit I'm going to, they have 113s. And you're like, well, we, we, we can't do this airline battle without, you know, Bradleys because we don't have them. That unit doesn't have them. And I get there, and sure enough, that's all they have is, like, 113s. But you still have to, to – to train and practice and, and do all the things that, you know, you, you know you're going to be required to do, you know, and using doctrine as your foundation. And, and we did it. In some cases, we were out on golf courses with golf carts, you know, practicing formations and everything else, it's just being creative. But the Bradleys eventually came. But we didn't sit and, you know, and wring our hands, nor did the leadership allow us to do that either, to wring our hands. Well, you know, what was you? You can look and talk to your buddy over here, and they have Bradleys and you don't. Okay, you're still going to have to do the same thing. And when the Bradleys do show up, you, you better be able to do it, right? And, and that was, you know, the general mindset. And, 
I'm not saying it's completely gone away, but but we're going to have to to do those things. Like Rich said, is we're still going to have to practice and work our way through. Yes, it does take a, a long time, you know, in some cases to to get the material solutions that we need. But but also there's non-material solutions that are out there too that we have to work our way through. Is there other suggestions that you'd have for building a, a leader professional development program to keep not just to ramp up for a warfighter because or a, a CTC rotation or something big that's going on, but to maintain and do continuous education and leadership on MDO? Yeah. One, I would say it, it has to be sustainable and you have to be consistent at it. That was one thing I would always say as a division commander, three things I focus on. It was effectiveness, consistency, efficiency in that order. Uh, how effective are you going to be and what things are you going to do to be effective? And then if, once you decide those and how consistent are you going to you have to be consistent at it. Uh, or otherwise you're wasting your time. And that's going to gain you efficiency, which is why I would put it in that order. So even with our leader development sessions, I mean, the one for the division was how we fight as a division, you know, it was throughout the year. And it just so happened we were going, you know, into a warfighter. But even if we weren't, I was going to do that anyway. And then how do you layer on top of that? So not only are you coming from a top-down perspective, you're coming from bottom-up. Because we typically do our leader development, and it's all top-down. And we're not filling in the gaps of, well, what are the lower formations, you know, want to know, what are they confused about? So we had an approach of, you know, bottom-up as well to, to get, you know, or have sessions on things that, you know, to me is like, you know, second nature or, yep, I got it, I understand it. But when you can hear from the formation, it's where we want to know about X, Y, and Z, or we want a session on this. That's great, because I, I never would, would have thought we needed to spend time on that. Uh, so you balance the two. And, you know, we would do that in a couple of ways, you know, one with the entire team, and I'm talking, you know, company level and up, and others I would do it just with battalion commanders, and that's where they had their opportunity, you know, bottom up. is like, what do you guys want to talk about? Guys and gals want to talk about, and, um, and how do we prioritize that? And that gave us the bottom up. So even for me, I can see what gaps we weren't filling in our, you know, leader development, you know, over the course, you know, of a year plus. What would you do? differently if you had the chance to go back with the current manual that we have for FM3O? If I had a chance to go back, we probably would have spent a little bit more time. And we, we walked our way through it, you know, by warfighting function, by chapter, and linked all those things together. But I think I would have, you know, brought in, you know, more perspective, you know, at the very beginning. You know, um, I remember being at 10th Mountain before, going back there as division commander, and Rich, Rich had come there, you know, to talk to us about doctrine. So just setting a better foundation, you know, writ large, you know, our body of doctrine, you know, all things training, you know, if possible, get, you know, CTC, you know, reps, you know, somewhere on the, within the division, just so we, we had a macro view. I don't think we started with, you know, kind of seeing all things. We just kind of narrowly focused and, and used doctrine as a guide, but, but I would have expanded out a bit more uh, to, to see the connections. I mean, because you talked modernization, we bring in somebody from, you know, whether it be a futures command, have have them kind of lay a foundation too. So you can really see, we know we're going to have gaps in there because those things, we're, we're not going to have them. So now what do we do? And that would have been, I think, a much better foundation if I had to do it all over again. So how about you in the writing of FM3O and, and the publication of it? Is there something that you would have done differently? Um, no, because I think we've had, uh, I mean, you always want more time. Right, I mean that'd be great, uh, but you you got to balance that tension. I guess the force needs something better than, than we had. We weren't embarrassed or unhappy with the doctrine that we had, um, but we were in such a hurry 
to get the Army shifted to a focus on large-scale combat operations, and that's really what the focus of the 2017 book is. The MDO side of it was a component, but it was about driving a cultural change. And so this book is, is very different from that one in the sense that a lot of basic fundamental blocking and tackling kind of things are now out of there and back into our tactics uh, publications. Um, and some other things we could, we could spend less time on because we really wanted to focus on the essence uh, of the problem. So I, I'm not concerned uh, or too concerned about, you know, hey, I wish we had done something different. Um, and we had a lot of support, right, from Army senior leadership and, and kind of an awesome amount of trust. It's almost scary sometimes that you're like, hey, you guys got this, right? And, okay, we got it. We really need you to look at it because uh, we're getting close to, to, to uh, publication time. I would add something to uh, General Beagle's point is I, I think we have got to go back to being really ruthless about subject matter expertise by branch and MOS. Expand. We grew up in an army where you were, it, it was pretty ruthless, right? I mean, lieutenants that couldn't talk on two radio nets and, and fight their tank uh, or their Bradley or so forth um, generally found themselves doing something else uh, in less than a year. Um, company commanders who were, in our case, I'll use armor as a background. If you were a tank rider as opposed to a tanker, right, and tankers out there in the audience know what the difference between the two are, uh, you generally uh, didn't move on. Uh, to a long and distinguished career, at least in that branch. Uh, and the reason that, that was so is there was still this cultural norm that, you know, the best tanker or tankers in a tank company should be the first sergeant of the company commander. Same thing in the battalion, right? Uh, same thing in whatever type of brigade you were at. Uh, when, you, when you had a comma signal uh, soldier, they were expected to be, you know, the best signal person in your organization, uh, intel. Pick one. The expectation was you were the expert, and so when you're doing MDMP, military decision-making process at a battalion or a brigade or a division staff, if you were the one representing that branch or warfighting function or battlefield operating system back in the day, uh, you were supposed to not only speak knowledgeably about what you can do or, or what we could do, but you were also supposed to be pretty knowledgeable about what the threat could do. Right, the expert on threat engineering capabilities was not the S2, it was the, the, your engineer, right? Um, and so we, for good reasons, spent our time not doing that because we were doing other things and doing our nation's business. But we have to get back to that and we can't focus on one adversary. We've got multiple adversaries out there. So it's harder now than it was then to get to that level. Uh, the other thing is when we lack experience, we've got to find substitutes for it. And that's what the leadership development of the CG was talking about, I think, helps us get to. So what are the substitutes for real experience? Well, if you're, it's training is one, um, but you also use LPDs to look at history, study case studies, uh, do war games, um, and, and so forth. Uh, and, and it's a continuous basis because you can't achieve that expertise. You know, every day somebody you know, you should be quizzing your platoon leaders or your company commander. You know, whenever you get together, you should, there should be something that you talk about that's not just administrative, I think. Um, and it can be casual, right? I mean, it doesn't need to be always you know, everybody in a conference room sitting down to do stuff. It, it's just a way of doing business, a cultural thing. And you make it fun for people. Yeah. One of the things that used to drive me crazy, and I, don't, and I know you and I have talked about this, it drove ab absolutely crazy over the, the the last 20 years of my career was uh, 
this assumption that everybody was tactically proficient. Yeah. Right? We always would say our army, we're, we're so tactically proficient and, and you know, it's at the operational and strategic levels we have all this problem. And I'm looking around going, I don't know what army you're talking about, but that is lies. That, that's that was never true. It wasn't true in the 80s and 90s and it sure as heck wasn't true in the 2000s. Um, and so we shouldn't kid ourselves. We should see ourselves for how we are and we shouldn't just assume that we can be good at something. Um, and I think the, the sobering point should be watching the, the wars. Uh, over the last few years, particularly the one in Ukraine, you know, you're talking about a, a peer threat that's struggling to defeat a, uh, a second-rate uh, economic power, third-rate economic power, and a military, and, and, and not a military power at all, really. Uh, and yet, uh, that power, uh, Ukraine, has adapted. Uh, they they learn real quickly you know they're doing what they have to do to win and they're doing it on the fly at great cost and you know so shame on us if we don't say hey that could be us in a different part of the world against a different enemy um, and we didn't take advantage of the time we had when we knew that there was a potential for that and that's in a sense of urgency thing and i think we wrote this book uh 3-0 with that sense of urgency in the back of our, our hands. We didn't try to know drama right, but we, we really, I think, if you read the book from beginning to end, uh, and we know that's not how you read doctrine, but if you were to do that, you would feel this sense of urgency in every chapter. Yeah, no, and I would I would totally agree. And that was one point, you know, I failed to mention, Nikki, with regard to leader development. The very first thing that we did as a division was, you know, how do we train? You have to see yourself. So I mean, exactly what you know, Rich is talking about. See yourself as an individual. It gets back to the expertise. Are you good as you think you are? How do you see yourself as a unit? How do you see yourself as a formation? But we were able to do it. You know, as a as a team, as a division, to go. How do how do we train? And and once we started to illuminate and see things, we're like, yeah, we're not as good as we we think we are, right? On our live fires and, and me being in the room, like I've I've seen your live fires, but I'm not poking at you. Again, we're we're kind of fooling ourselves, but but openly admitting that is, yeah, we're not perfect. We're we're not as tactically proficient as we think we are, because look at what we're doing. And and once we set that as you know part of our foundation, then you can grow from that. But you really do have to to go back and and see yourself. And the only other thing I'd, I'd add to you know what Rich's saying, that I think is complimentary, is you know we can't assume as leaders either. And you know part of that you know I think is it comes from assumptions we assume. You, you, you came out of CGSC, you came out of your career course, so therefore you're proficient where I, where I need you to be. Don't, don't assume that, right? And, and we've seen that even as uh, using simple examples of you know, units going out to CTCs and some things that we can still see today. So don't, don't make that assumption. But again, it's not you know, senior leaders poking junior leaders or anything else. It's like, let me, let me confirm. Let me confirm where we are because it's part of the leader responsibility to go back and, and close that gap. You know, and we've got multiple ways and approaches that we can do that, but you need to confirm it first. And if not, you make a bad assumption, then you, hopefully you won't see that assumption play out you know, uh, in a place where it's really going to count. Oh, I feel a plug for FM70 coming up. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. All of them. Uh, but because you said it, and, and it goes back to an earlier point you brought up, is you know, how do I see FM30 differently now? And, and it's not only 30, but it goes back to the point I made about the understanding. And, I think the great thing that we've done, I've never seen it in, in my 32 years, 
is when you look at FM3O and you go from chapter eight as an example, there's there's a link and a connection to FM622, right? And you, that link is it's already laid out, that path is laid out there for you, but very similar with other parts of our doctrine, the linkages now are much stronger and better and you have to follow those links and then use it, then leverage it. And so I'm glad you said FM722 because that was part of the lens we had to look through for, hey, how do we train, right? What does doctrine say and how are we really doing it? Okay, so we're, we, we've got some disconnects. Yeah. Gentlemen, is there anything that you'd want to leave our audiences with before we depart out for the day? Well, I'm going to give the CG the last word, but uh, I just, uh, I would put a plug in there and, and say, hey, when you get a chance, we know everybody's busy. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that uh, you can access this book. Uh, we got briefings out there, and there's a chain teach that's out there, but again, it's no substitute for reading it. Listen to this podcast isn't a substitute for reading it. Uh, and White Claws, which, uh, or any other thing that, that's got lots of different nuances in it, you got to read it more than once. And probably every time you have a major career change, is you know, whatever version of it it's out there, you probably need to read it again because you're going to look at it differently as you move up. Uh, in terms of levels of responsibility or different types of jobs. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I like where you're going, Rich, but I'm glad you didn't say something because it was a point I wanted to make. And the, the point you didn't cover that's out there is audiobooks. I mean, never before have I seen doctrine on audiobooks, and I have used it, right? Uh, going on trips, stick the earbuds in, and listen to FM3 on an audiobook. You're like, awesome. So again, you can read it with your eyes, and now you can listen to it. But you know, we're, we're, and I say we, now being part of the team, but, you know, here with, with CAD and across the board, I mean, everybody's doing everything possible to, you know, help educate, you know, our force. And to have Dr. Audiobook is, is pretty awesome. And, you know, the fact of doing podcasts. So we're trying to meet the needs of the entire force. I mean, everybody learns in a different way, and but it's there for you. And I applaud, you know, the team and the efforts, you know, over time to get us to where we are now. And it's been great to sit here with my battle buddy, and, and learn more. Every time I listen to Rich, I learn something new every single time. But Nikki, thank you as well for facilitating and moderating this. Oh, it's been greatly appreciated. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for coming out today. In preparing for today's podcast, there is no substitute for the Army's body of knowledge. FM 3.0, both the 2017 and 22 editions that informed a number of questions I had for our guests. And those current editions are now available for download at the Army Publishing Directorate. And the previous edition of FM 3.0, and also including FM 100-5, which discussed things like active defense and airland battle previously, are available through the Combined Arms Research Library here at Fort Leavenworth and their online archives. Unpacking the implications of MDO to Army's various echelons and its units of action has been a recent source of discussion across the force on social media and professional journals and on other military podcasts. Back in September and October edition 2018 of Military Review, General Townsend began exploring the idea of how multi-domain battle would evolve and grow with technology in his article, Accelerating Multi-Domain Operations, Evolution of an Idea. Over the years, an increasing number of leaders and thinkers have joined the debate. For this podcast, I tapped into some younger officers and their insights. Major Jesse Skates' Multi-Domain Operations at Division Below was also published in Military Review in January-February 2021. Lieutenant Colonel Amos Fox, regularly cited here on this podcast, Getting Multi-Domain Operations Right, Two Critical Flaws in the U.S. Army's Multi-Domain Operations Concept, was published by the Association of the United States Army in their online journal in June of 2021. 
And I also tapped into Lieutenant Colonel Nate Jenning and Carl Trottier's The 1973 Arab-Israeli War, Insights for Multi-Domain Operations, also published by AUSA in December of 2022. And also, Christopher Parker's July 2021, Rushing to Defeat the Strategic Flaw in Contemporary U.S. Army Thinking, which was published by the Strategy Bridge Online Journal. To understand what MDO meant to our partners and to our allies, I got some insight from British doctrine writers and friends at the Land Warfare Center in Warminster, who've also previously been guests on our podcast. I also used Aroshi Singh's Multi-Domain Operations in India, Parts 1 and 2, which was published by the Wavell Room in 2021, and Mark Mankowski's discussion on Does the Australian Army Need Multi-Domain Operations, which was published in November of 2019 by The Cove. Breaking Doctrine takes a team. Without a crew and special doctrine division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper. If you're interested in joining the team here at the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, we are active on the AIM-20 cycle, and we're looking to fill positions at both the 01 and 02 manning cycles. Please reach out to your branch manager at HRC for more information, or reach out here to CAD. Don't forget to subscribe on either Google or Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates to new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and our publications. And finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel, retired Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.